everyone. Welcome to a Friday edition and a special season of Abolitionist Lent Bible study. This Lenten season, we're going to be furthering our practice that we started in Advent um, and inviting people across traditions and mediums to explore themes of revelation, disruption, examination, and embodiment in ways that will support a larger faith movement reimagining restorative solutions to community safety, health, and wellness. So abolition means not just the closing of prisons and ending of policing, but also putting in place the vital systems of support that many communities are systematically disenfranchised from. I wanna name the abolitionist Lent is a collaboration between organizations and some individuals, including Fellowship of Reconciliation, more like Presbyterians, and the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship, as well as some additional thought partners, including Reverend Lindsay Anderson, Miles Markham, Minister Candace Simpson, Reverend Ananda Barclay. So you're invited to join us through the Lenten season, which we are launching now, um, as we define, explore, reflect, and take action to further the inbreaking of abolition into this world. Today, I am excited to be exploring Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 17, the little story of a covenant with Noah, through the theme of promise with one of our abolitionist Lent and Advent co-conspirators, Reverend Emily Brewer. Emily, it's wonderful to have you on this, on this uh, show today. So before we begin, we want to introduce our name, our pronoun, work and identities because we know that we bring our context with us whenever we open the Bible. Emily, welcome. Thanks. Um, and just like I need to say, I'm a longtime listener, first time caller here uh, and really thrilled <laughs> to be here. Um, anyways, uh, yeah, my name is Emily Brewer. Um, for my work, I am the executive director of the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship. And I've been in that role since about 2015. Um, we are a 75, 76 year old organization um, committed to nonviolence. And we were founded by and for conscientious objectors during World War II. Um, so very much come from this lineage of anti-war and, and creative active nonviolence. Um, and my pronouns are she and her. And apart from my role as um, with the Peace Fellowship, some of my identities that I carry are that I am a white cisgender woman. Um, I hold a US passport. I was born and raised in the South but currently live in New York City in Brooklyn. Um, I am a daughter and a sister and newly a mom, which is an identity I'm still figuring out. I guess we're all figuring out most of our identities for most of our lives, but that one feels real fresh. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I bring a lot of other identities. Many of them just um, are really kind of normative identities. And so I think also I want to name that I am challenged and shaped hopefully by people who don't carry all of those normative identities that I do. Um, and I'm really grateful for all of those people who have helped shape me. Yes, thank you, Emily. And I want to name, we are longtime collaborators, first time Facebook livers together. <laughs> That's true. We've gotten to um, inspire on justice and inclusion and abolition um, newly, but liberation within the Presbyterian church uh, and for the world for uh, as long as you've been in ED and before that even. Uh, 
So I'm grateful for you and the partnership we get to have with Presbyterian Peace Fellowship. So as y'all know, I'm Alex Patchen McNeil. My pronouns are he and him. Um, I get to serve as executive director at More Light Presbyterians, um, working for full inclusion and abundance for LGBTQIA plus folks and how we live that out in the world. Um, so that's the work I get to do when I'm not on Facebook Live. And um, my identities are as a white transgender man, also born and raised in the South, as I say all the time. And here I'm living back in North Carolina, um, which again, can just continues to be a study in, um, I think in, in paying attention to narratives that have shaped this state and continue to shape our po political reality. And um, I think in, particularly in the work of abolition, the ways in which legacies of enslavement and, um, and um, genocide, especially as we explore this text, continue to permeate the land we're on as someone sitting on land that has been occupied by Cherokee and continues to be occupied by Cherokee indigenous, uh, indigenous people. Yes, identities. I love the idea, the, the fresh identity of being a parent. Um, I have a sibling going through that, that exact same thing. So I think it's interesting when those new identities spring into our lives. <laughs> um, and, and though all of the identities we have are always in formation, I think there's something very precious and challenging and amazing about a brand new identity that is coming into your life. So sending you solidarity and all those who are kind of in the midst of navigating whatever your new identities are. So that's it. I'm excited to explore this text together. Um, we're going to be reading Genesis 9 chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 9 verses 8 through 17 together. And again, we're going to borrow from Lectio Divina with a twist um, and a frame of abolition, but we're also going to explore some, some themes of promise within this text. So Emily, would you be willing to kick, us, kick off our first reading as we think about and notice what is going on in this passage that stands out to us? I'd love to. Um, and this is a um, common English version. Um, and I feel like I didn't even really see what Bible I was grabbing because I was trying to sneak into the dark room where the baby is sleeping to grab the Bible. Um, but I, I just feel like it warrants naming too that this Bible is actually um, Daniel Berrigan's and a friend um, got it and gave it to me as an ordination gift. So when we're talking about some of the dreamers and ancestors um, that have shaped us, that feels important to name. Okay, so Genesis 9, 8 through 17. Again, God said to Noah and his sons, I'm going to make a solemn promise to you and to everyone who will live after you. This includes the birds and the animals that came out of the boat. I promise every living creature that the earth and those living on it will never again be destroyed by a flood. The rainbow that I have put in the sky will be my sign to you and to every living creature on earth. It will remind you that I will keep this promise forever. When I send clouds over the earth and a rainbow appears in the sky, I will remember my promise to you and to all other living creatures. Never again will I let floodwaters destroy all life. When I see the rainbow in the sky, I will always remember the promise that I have made to every living creature. The rainbow will be a sign of that solemn promise. I'm curious what stood out to you in this first reading, rereading of a very familiar passage. I think um, 
one thing that stood out, and especially as I was reading it aloud, um, is just the repetition that God, God is talking about the rainbows being a reminder to God's self um, of this promise, of this relationship. Um, of course, the rainbow feels like a stands out um, as something that I connect to childhood. That's what I remember about this story from childhood, so I can't not notice it now. But I think especially just the repetition, like, I will remember, I will never destroy again. Um, yeah. It leaps out at me right now. Yeah. I, I don't think I remembered that level of repetition from, you know, before I reread the passage in, in prep for today. Um, and what stood out to me was the promise, not just to Noah and, and their descendants, but with every living, living creature that was there with them in the ark, but also, I don't know, just the, the breadth, of that promise was, yeah, I, I think stood out to me and, and thinking about this idea of an arc or a rainbow or some, you know, the, the bow being an all-encompassing promise. Mm. Yeah, has no discernible beginning or end usually, right? Yeah, but I, yes. No, I just, I think when you, when you were talking about um, how the breadth of it and it's it's all creatures right not just all people um, and it was reminding me of I was on a call last night and somebody opened us with the poem um, I'll look up the name of the author in just a moment but um, of a small needful fact which is a poem about Eric Garner working in the parks department and how how um, connected Eric Garner's life was to those things that give breath to the world and especially in New York city where I am. But, um, there's a phrase in there that, um, talks about all the necessary creatures. Mm. And so when I'm reading this text, after having read that poem just 18 hours ago, those like the creatureliness of it is coming out of me and the necessary creatures. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he's got to say something about, um, like all the creatures that are emerging from this arc, the, the, those that have been supposedly safely contained within this structure, but um, the connection between us as creatures and the earthly creatures and the earthlings that we were. Um, and uh, I think Jess actually added a um, citation for that poem as well, because we have shared it before. It's such a powerful... <laughs> ...needful fact the reminder of the, of the deep connection. Something that kind of um, messed me up <laughs> in preparing for this passage. You know, I love, I love a rainbow, as we know. I like to point to my banner uh, behind me at various intervals throughout our conversations. But I was reading a commentary um, in, in the, the recently released PCSA Connections lectionary situation. And they talked about the word bow, keshet, which, um, has been translated as rainbow is also a word for an arrow, like a drawn bow. And what they were saying, this is Ryan P. Bonfiglio. Yeah, I think I pronounced that correctly. Um, is that this idea that's usually it's a war image, this drawn bow. And what he was naming was that in this idea of a bow in the sky, it's like an undrawn bow, just like loose, hanging, not, not uh, you know, with, for the purposes of war. 
and that this could be an image of demilitarization instead of, you know, and not instead of, but like kind of underlying this, this, this idea of like a rainbow, I think also means peace. We have this peace dove that Noah sends out um, to see if there's dry land. And it, that completely just flipped my lid a little bit. <laughs> so I had to bring it in because I've been th thinking about it ever since, um, especially as we're exploring abolition and the connection between anti-war ending of, um, uh, uh, of war and abolishing systems that cause war <laughs> internally um, and, and sort of separate people from their families. Um, what if this is truly a thing, a, a promise of demilitarization? And that's beautiful too, and, and really fits in with the, um, I think, I, I imagine we may talk about this in, um, maybe in one of the other questions, but, um, you know, the, the, the flood story. So this is the promise at the end of the flood. And we actually have two flood stories, right. That are kind of woven together that we think are probably from two different, um, sources that were kind of oral histories passed down. And then when, when they were written, um, people were like, well, we have these kind of two stories and rather than like pick one or try to just do a mashup, we're just going to like kind of keep both stories and interweave them together. But the promise text that we're reading for today um, is real is most connected um, comes from the same source we think as the story that names that the flood is punishment for human violence and so to have a reminder that like we will not use these weapons of violence any longer that's really powerful um yeah I, I love that and I did and not know that I know me truly me either and and the idea that kind of back to your original comment that God is almost reminding God's self, I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, which I think is also important connection with our work of abolition around the constant need to, even if we commit to something, if we covenant to something, we have to keep repeating it over and over again. It's not just a one-time action and it's done, but that what are the reminders of our commitments and our values that can be right in front of us so that we're not slipping back into you know, the use of force or militarization. Um, uh, Josh Sheeran just commented um, in on Facebook around um, God is hanging up arms against the people to say, you know, I'm putting these, these weapons down. And um, the idea that I think Jess Cook shared around, it's like sh swords into plowshares and bows into rainbows. Um, I think that's a really neat way of seeing that, you know, both interpretations are accurate. Um, and help to extend the metaphor. Totally, I love that. Yeah. Um, do you wanna, I think we're kind of excited to move into our second and third reading <laughs> and we have more time there. Um, so let's do that um, and kind of be more quick about it this time to move into that. Um, so in the second question, the second reading, we're gonna think about how does this text call us to resistance and as I've offered before, we think of resistance in a nuanced way, both resistance to empire and status quo, and where are we resisting parts of this text? What is resistant within us? And moving into an exploration of that can help um, kind of break up the log jam sometimes and, and open a new flow from the spirit for us in this text. So I invite that to surface. Um, I 
we'll do the second, I'm happy to do the second reading and I will read from the new revised standard version so we can have a couple of different interpretations. All right. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, as for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Where did you hear a call to resistance in this second reading, Emily? I hear so many, and I think I'm still kind of re reeling, turning over that um, image in my head of this being a bow. But, but I think when I think about um, within ourselves, I'll speak kind of in the context of the moment that we're in and this conversation on abolition and Lent um, as a white person, I, th I think about this work as um, anti-racism work and um, God repeating over and over to God's self, I will remember, this will remind me, I'm gonna need a reminder, this is gonna remind me again, every time I see this, I'm gonna remember, um, but that, like this work is not something, it's not an arrival point. Like we, I, um, we never arrive at a point of being perfectly anti-racist. We can read every single book there is, you know, um, whatever. Um, it's a constant um, work and tending um, and noticing when defensiveness comes up, noticing when we're exhibiting some of those white supremacy cultural values around, um, you know, being super agenda driven rather than relationship driven or whatever that might be. Uh, I mean, there's several, I'm referencing specifically some work by Tima Okun around white supremacy culture that I think is just really helpful for those of us who are white as individuals and as people in organizations and institutions to notice some of those because those, um, those qualities and characteristics come up over and over again and we can know all about them and we still have so much to do constantly to notice to redirect and in the context of Lent I think about repent right where it's a constant need for repentance um, and a turning right like we're going down this path whoop, we got to turn and repent and go a little bit different direction yeah. Um, but yeah, it's not a static arrival point. Uh, God too needed reminders of the ways that God wanted to live or, or be in relationship with the people. And, and what I noticed is that this promise is not something disconnected from the act of repentance that God is saying, here's what I did. 
And I don't want to do that again. I'm making a covenant with you not to do that again. And I think so much of, um, we, we have to talk about abolition in the context of reparation, in the context of confession and um, moving just to some a vision of liberation that doesn't have some really important steps within it, I don't think actually achieves what abolition is meant to do. Uh, if we take down and end prisons and policing, okay, but can we acknowledge the harms that those systems have caused for generations? And what are we gonna do about that? Um, it made me wonder what would it be like to write our covenants of abolition? Um, what are we, what are we hoping for in the work of abolition? Um, you know, what, like never again shall humans be locked into cages or never again shall families be separated from each other as a form of punishment, right? Like what is that litany of confession mm -hmm. for a promise that we're trying to live out? Mm -hmm. um, well, and, and I think what you were saying makes me realize, you know, that the flood is a punitive measure against humans, right? For it's, it's meaning, um, the violence of humans with utter destruction, right? And it's like, and that's what our prison system does. It just utterly destroys people's lives. Um, it destroys communities. It destroys our relationships with each other. Um, prison and policing, right? The 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 ways, not just the um, police force, but the ways that we police each other and the ways that the church polices people, right? Um, it destroys relationships and it's a punitive measure against behavior that we don't, that we have deemed right. un unwanted, right? Um, and in this story, God is like, oh, that doesn't work. That's like, that's not what we need to do. <laughs> um, right. We need another way. That's and the covenant totally new. about relationships. Right, totally. That I, I tried to punish without being in relationship with you. And that that doesn't work as you're saying. Um, I didn't mean to cut you off, but it was just, I thought it was really exciting what you were saying. And um, yeah, and, and what what is also resisting, I just wanna like hold, what is also resisting in me is recognizing the context, like you said, of this passage. So we have this beautiful covenant. And then right after this, we have the uh, Canaanite curse of Ham conversation. <laughs> uh, like, so Noah and his family get out of the ark, then they have a family squabble. And that has been, you know, used to justify so much, um, you know, oppression, mistreatment, like division. And I wanna, I said, okay, I'm holding that. Also, when you were saying, you know, God said, uh, using the flood as punishment, what it made me think of, this may be kind of wild, is, so we're reading Genesis, which is an interpretation of a natural disaster. So a huge flood, we have other sources that have named, you know, ancient Near East sources that said, there was a huge flood and it was horrible. And so then we had an opportunity, like what did that flood mean? Was that from God? Was that something about our relationship with God? Are we being punished as sinful creatures? And then we have this next story of, of you know, the quote curse of hammer, whatever, um, which is also an interpretation of a family dynamic. 
So noticing part of our work of abolition is reimagining interpretive story. So what is the narrative that we're telling? And I think punitive justice, that's the only story we think we can tell. Like someone did something harmful and then they must be punished. So what does it mean for us to like, you know, kind of scroll back, zoom out, say, wait a minute, there's another way to tell a story of what could be possible from this horrible instance. It's like, we may not be able to prevent every horrible disaster, every, every act of violence, but our response to it is just as important in some ways. I don't know. Brewer, what you thinking? Yeah, I think that really resonates. And um, I just think, I, I couldn't, I didn't remember if you named this explicitly, but just, I think it really warrants naming that the, um, the curse of ham um, is often used, especially by white folks in the past to justify chattel slavery in the United States, right? I mean, and, and lots of other kinds of divisions. Um, I don't, I'm sorry if you said that, but it feels important. No, I didn't <laughs> You know, I think like, right. those were my ancestors who did that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's important to, to me, at least to acknowledge that, um, it has been used to justify all kinds of divisions and hierarchies uh, in, in humans, but that one specifically feels important to name one in this context of abolition. Right. Um, yeah, and I think I also didn't realize until I reread this text that it's Noah who does the cursing, not God. Mm-hmm. Um, I think somehow that had just all gotten mushed up in my head, <laughs> um, like often happens when I actually really closely read the text. Um, but yeah, so like God has made this covenant with Noah and, um, and I want a story where Noah changes how Noah lives. Right. And yet like Noah's person, I'm a person, we mess up again. Um, and he messed up big by cursing a whole nother people. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's, but it's not God. It's, it's Noah who does the cursing and God keeps God's promise. God never destroys the entire earth again in the Bible. Right. Um, and yeah, I think, I think your point about um, this is a story, understanding a natural disaster is, is important. And, and also like within the context of the larger Bible, that at least what we have, the texts that we have show us that the interpretation is that God didn't destroy again in that way. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, we could, a long dive into scriptures, authors, and relationship with God. Anyway, um, yeah, and I, I think we're in this moment of pandemic, and I'm just so aware of the hope versus the, the challenge. And, you know, here's this family that just got off an ark, stuck together for as long as they were, and then they have this horrible misunder I don't, I don't truth to truth be told this next story of the conversation and the cursing of the canines I barely have ever read <laughs> and that's probably because I know it's such a horrible text and I just haven't dealt with it so that's my that's on me um but it you know it's it, what is it like to I think hold in that 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 opportunity for remembering God's promise at every decision like what you know, you have this family conflict and drama playing out. There could have been another way to have, like, what would it be like to remember God's promise for all the creatures 
then <laughs> I'm pretty sure you wouldn't curse a whole like nation of people um, if you could have remembered that. And so I, I think there's something in this work of resistance, like you were saying very early on that, you know, the commitments that we have to abolition, to liberation, to justice, those can't just be over here, pie in the sky. They actually have to impact how we interact with one another. And, and that goes to the level of our families um, and that goes to the level of our communities. Um, and so if we're espousing a, um, some, some sort of like beautiful liberation and abolition um, vision, but yet mistreating the people in our immediate circle, that's something to, to notice. I think, do you remember that movie about Noah? I think it was called Noah from, I don't know, probably eight or 10 years ago. Um, I don't think I watched it. I think um, I did see it. I like remember very little of it, but a friend was reminding me um, that um, I think that the interpretation in the movie of this scene is that, um, so, you know, Noah and his family were kind of chosen to be the ones to survive and to, to be set apart while everybody else is destroyed. Um, and at the end that this, this scene, um, is interpreted as Noah being kind of so traumatized by the flood and by the survival that he gets so drunk, um, as like a coping mechanism. But I think when I, um, so I don't want to get too far down that <laughs> thread, but like, but I think what it, what it, when I think about it in this context, um, and if I think about um, Noah kind of being understood as like set apart, which mm -hmm. is often the way that white supremacy operates, right? It's like this idea that for some reason, skin color, um, white people are seen as over and against right. people of color, particularly um, black people, everything is measured, right? Against black and white. Um, but that that also damages Noah's relationships, right? That kind of, um, yeah, that it, it's, mm. it's destructive um, to Noah as well. That's right. That, oh, I love that um, reminder again of how much, you know, if, if again, especially as a white person, if I'm separ separating justice and abolition and liberation as something I'm, I'm working, you know, on behalf of, for other people, but not recognizing that, that that is also part of my own liberation and um, transformation, that I'm not immune to the, you know, what, what again, what it's been like for Noah to be like, oh, this changes the way I have to behave. And, and yet, like, also recognizing what you were naming of the, the trauma and, you know, like the, 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 the malforming of what kind of a, a, a kind of separated um, and apart experience could have been. Um, yeah. I just wanna bring in something that Lee Kato says around thinking about the rainbow, which upon the first glance has a definite beginning and end, but, the, but actually rainbows don't have the ending. They're a circle that it's a, it's a continual work of confession, repentance and the work of justice, which Again, I think that's also something we could apply to ourselves, that this is, this is our covenant 
within ourselves of this work is that it is going to be on a continual cycle. And often it's premised upon um, messing up, repenting, and, and turning around, re redoing, and um, repairing. Totally. I think I, I just want to name too that I'm recognizing um, in the context of this conversation and reading this story, like we often do, that I am like identifying both with Noah in ways that I think are potentially challenging to me as a white person, hopefully, and, and leading to self-examination. I also was identifying with God early on of like needing reminders, but just um, noting how much uh, kind of we read ourselves into the text. Um, yeah. Yeah, which makes me wonder, what does it look like to identify with the animals mm. and the creatures? Yeah, and all the folks who didn't, who were killed, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the, I mean, we're, I think this pandemic and, and our um, ongoing reckoning of racial injustice is such a reminder of those who have been killed in the wake of these systems that were set up to destroy and they, they achieved their purpose. Mm -hmm. um, you know, no, the COVID was not, um, again, it was a natural disaster, but the structural response heightened, it's like, oh, <laughs> excuse me, opening the levees, <laughs> for example. <laughs> um, and knowing that particularly uh, marginalized folks were gonna receive the brunt of of the virus um, as if like, uh, yeah, if there was some sort of background quest for herd immunity, mm -hmm. who, would, who would be killed to achieve that end? Um, mm -hmm. If we're trying to avoid a major flood in a city, whose houses were, are we willing to destroy to achieve that end? Right. Um, yeah, because the story is seen as sad and it's a story of, of devastation, but like we never talk about what all was lost Mm -hmm. would have been lost in that flood right it's kind of like oh that's a bummer okay well and then chapter 10 you know um let's go on um but yeah all of the stories that didn't survive right yeah this is truly a story of genocide mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know potentially earth being devastated i think cert certainly the immediate area of of where these um folks were was completely destroyed mm -hmm. and the loss of that and it makes me think like you know we can't necessarily prevent a natural disaster like hurricane katrina if that was going to send the name my reference from the levees but again there were human decisions that impacted the way first of all the, the impact of the environment <laughs> leading up that allows for super hurricanes, that allows for our earth to um, manifest weather in this way because of climate change. And then the, all the decisions of, as you're facing this storm, where to put the FEMA site, which levies to open. Um, we, we, that's been studied you know, a lot now in terms of the misresponse. Um, and I'm, I'm sure this this past year will be as well. Um, mm -hmm. And as abolitionists, I think a part of our role is to notice the different decision points that, again, 
lead to furthering the disaster. And the violence, right? Like the, those injustices that make um, Hurricane Katrina, COVID, all of these things hit some communities first and worst. Um, it, that unequal impact of these like natural disasters is a result of the like very unnatural violences that we have set up structurally, which I think is what you were saying. But just like when I when I think back about this text, the flood came as a result of human violence, right? And the devastation um, was punishment for human violence. And I think that we're trying to get out of a reading of this as a punitive um, thing, but I think it warrants noting that the violence brings about destruction and, right. and it impacts some communities much worse than others. Right, and I think it is an act of resistance to notice and name that. Um, and we might be, uh, you know, I think, I think sometimes you just want to read the beautiful text about the rainbow. Yeah, let's just read the rainbow. Let's just read the rainbow. <laughs> let's reading rainbow. Um, which makes me think it's time for our third reading, speaking of, um, to move into what vision for the work of abolition this text offers. I think we've already been naming that, but a, a further question that I've been sitting with as part of this third reading is, what are we invited to abolish as part of this passage? So I wanna hold those two questions for us and invite you to read us for the third time. Thanks, and we are eight through 17, right? Genesis 9, eight through 17. Again, God said to Noah and his sons, I am going to make a solemn promise to you and to everyone who will live after you. This includes the birds and the animals that came out of the boat. I promise every living creature that the earth and those living on it will never again be destroyed by a flood. The rainbow that I have put in the sky will be my sign to you and to every living creature on earth. It will remind you that I will keep this promise forever. When I send clouds over the earth and a rainbow appears in the sky, I will remember my promise to you and to all other living creatures. Never again will I let floodwaters destroy all life. When I see the rainbow in the sky, I will always remember the promise that I have made to every living creature. The rainbow will be the sign of that solemn promise. A vision for abolition. I think um, where I'm landing right now is in coming out of talking out of, about the um, COVID-19 pandemic, the increasing just devastation of the economic inequality that, I mean, the stock market is going real great. So the rich are getting real rich and, you know, other people are unemployed and not receiving any payment. Um, people are being evicted, you know, all of these kind of compounding things. And, um, and on top of that, the pandemic of police brutality that we've been living with for 400 years and more um, and all the violences that are connected with that I I'm like where is the promise mm. right like what when you ask about like what is the vision for abolition I'm like what I, I want to know where the promise is. like what where is the rainbow <laughs> um yeah. you know and it's not just a vaccine like yeah that is a sign of hope but it it's not a vision of um this will never happen again I promise yeah. that this will never happen again um and so I'm I'm just noting that I'm, I'm struggling a little bit because I I want to see that promise written down. Right. Um, and, and, and that leads me to, I think part of the vision of abolition is that it is step by step 
Um, and we, we have to think about what the promise is. And the promise is that we can live together um, with uh, accountability instead of punitive justice as our measure for when we mess up. Because the promise is not that we will never mess up again. The promise is not that we won't need to be held accountable, but um, that violence and destruction will not be the answer. Um, and yeah, and so I think, you know, police were made to be a punitive measure, particularly against black enslaved people. Um, right. and, and so in order to live in that kind of new way, uh, apart from punitive justice, we have to abolish the police, but we also have to abolish the um, desire to police one another and to build hierarchies. Um, and it's hard to imagine because I feel like my brain at least um, has been so conditioned to think that the way that things are is just the natural way of things. But the promise is that there's something really radically different and we have to go step yeah. by step. We, we may not know all the steps to get there. We may not know exactly what it will look like, but we know that there is something different that awaits us if we, and that God wants something different for us. That makes me think about the visibility of that promise within this text, that God is setting something visible, like the bow in the sky, whether it's an arrow or a rainbow, it, you can see it. And as you were asking, where is the promise? I was reminded of a story that you actually shared with this abolitionist Lent planning group about the church that um, chose not to do any actors. I'd love to share some of that story, but being the visible sign of the promise, it's in looking to communities that are in the process of reimagining safety. We, do, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, groups specifically for. Uh, black trans women who I think are envisioning new worlds of safety and wellness and caretaking, you know, to, to help someone through their, from employment to housing, to food, to creative vision, that it's not just about surviving, but thriving. Um, and I think those models exist and our ways of whiteness have prior, have so prioritized specific metric of what it means to be successful, what it means to like a successful quote program, um, as if it was some sort of off the side thing. And especially those of us in nonprofits, we know that to, to receive funding, to receive like anything for our work, we have to prove that it could work um, a lot of times. But I think there are communities that are proving that that a new vision is possible in lots of creative ways. And to me, that's where I want to start envisioning the steps of the promise. Yeah, that's so helpful. And I think it, I think part of what um, I'm hearing you say in that too, is that it's not some external thing that's going to come and, ha and like bring abolition, right? Like, I think sometimes um, we expect like the government is going to enact policies. And I think that is a piece of it, but we have to like, but the, the policies are shaped by the vision, right? We push for policies that align better with the vision um, of abolition and, and, and that it, it's hyper-local work. And which I think that, you know, we, we know that um, 
I think we know that, that peacemaking happens on a hyper-local scale. Um, and it's in, like we were saying, like how we interact with our neighbors and the idea that hopefully that ripples out, right? That has an impact and the, the daily things that we do um, have an impact. And, and if, we're, if lots of us are doing them, um, that that can create transformation. That's not to say we don't also have to do large scale changes, right. um, but it's kind of yes and. Right, I mean, I, I, because it has to start, it does start locally because that's the level of relationship um, where you, I was, I was thinking about the protect the block um, actions in, in Minneapolis and people who's you know, like we're not allowing policing here or trying not to allow the militarized zone. So, but yet we want to keep our houses, like our, our community safe from the violence, the outside actors who are coming in to stir up violence. Um, so how do we keep each other safe? It's, you know, it, it does take knowing who's in your neighborhood and what they need and making sure they have enough food so they don't have to leave the neighborhood if it's unsafe. and. Um, Right, and that part of safety is and having the, having housing and oh sorry go ahead no just I, I think sometimes um yeah like part of what makes people safe is having a house and having food to eat and um being able to to walk down the street um and and it's not i think it is like scale upable but we don't have to um start kind of with the we got to change everything all at once overnight, right? I think um, what you were referencing with the church in, in Colombia, South America, the Presbyterian Church of Colombia, that has taken a strong stand against all the violence, all armed actors of all kinds. And, um, and they have been really courageous for years in standing up against that violence um, and have reached out to partners in the U.S. and other folks to say, hey, we need you to do this to help make us safe, right? And, um, and it's very relational. And now that Colombia is in a process of peace accords, um, our, our partners there say, but peace signed is not peace realized, right? Like we have the peace, the, we have the policies on paper, and now it's up to us to help implement the policies, but also it's up to us to help actually build peace in our neighborhoods and communities. Um, and and one of one of my favorite folks there named Herman Zarate, he says, you know, like Colombia has been at war for 60 years. It's going to take us at least 60 years to build the kind of society that we want to, that is truly peaceful. And it's not just the absence of war, but like thriving and justice, right? And, um, and he's like, this work is going to outlast me, but I'm going to do everything I can in my life to help set this up and to help make this real. Um, and I think that's what we're talking about. Like we may not see it in our lifetimes. Right. Um, and, and I think the other piece of that, that, that I, that feels important to name in this abolition vision conversation and that, that you have been naming of like these communities that are already doing this, already practicing mutual aid, already figuring out how to keep each other safe is, um, I'm reminded of um, Dr. King writes about this in the in his book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, but that um, 
we as Christians and particularly those of us who preach have to be really specific. We can't just preach about justice. We have to preach about specifically what it looks like. Um, and because when we just say, oh, justice, we're all like, oh yeah, I love justice. But when we're like, no, but justice means that we are moving funding away from police and into housing for people or away from police and into mental health care. Um, when we get down to like that more kind of granular level of what justice actually means is where the rubber hits the road. And that's really where we should be. Um, and that, and I think sometimes we, this is a very white cultural value, but we're very conflict avoidant. So we just stay in the like, justice right. is lovely kind of realm. Um, right, the rainbow. But like, we have to talk about specifically what it means and looks like. Um, and have to move toward the conflict like right yeah. conflict can be really generative that's right that's right yeah i going back to the the vision of the of the bow in the sky it has to be tangible visible experiential and embodied um and specific i think what i'm hearing you say and really appreciate that sometimes in the work that we do at more light when we're talking to churches that want to be more inclusive Sometimes they want to keep it at the realm of let's make a statement and put it in their bulletin, maybe, maybe. Um, but I always encourage them, okay, what does welcome feel like? What is it? And if you can't, then it's, it's not realized. And that goes to the level of your bathroom policies. That goes to the level of, are you actually naming identities that you want to include? Are you afraid to say the words gay and lesbian, bisexual, transgender, intersex, asexual, and, and plus? Um, so getting hyper-specific, hyper-local with the belief that that, and that this is, this can be realized at a structural scalable way, but if we're always waiting for that before we start to act in our communities that it'll never come, that we do have a responsibility. Um, I, I really resonated with the word, this is my solemn promise. And I'm not someone who I would consider myself solemn, but to take something seriously um, at that level to say, I'm taking this so seriously that I'm promising it. Um, I'm promising this level of relationship and specificity would be I think a, a, for a one first step. Yeah, and that's a covenant, right? It's like a, you can't break it. Right, right, yeah. Um, and that what would it look like to start this Lenten season, which begins next Sunday, we're kind of reading ahead um, for those who are gonna be preparing to preach on these texts. But what would it look like to start our Lenten season? Usually we talk about what we're gonna give up you know, that's one of our practices of remembering um, our covenant, but maybe the, our Lenten discipline is, what do we want to covenant to? What do we want to promise that we'll work for? We just ended a six month um, coaching session <laughs> over the past, uh, with the, in collaboration with Next Church around practices for, of anti-racism for faithful leaders. And we ended our last session yesterday with, what do you want to covenant to? What, what are you promising to do? What do you need to give up or, or willing to risk for the sake of this work? And to me, that feels like an important question for us as we move through these next 40 days, because Jesus 
gave up, God gave up and risked so much for the sake of abundance and love and a promise of a new vision for what all earth could be. Mm-hmm. When it's it, hearing you say that makes me think it, that, that, that this promise story that we're reading in Genesis and the promise of baptism, that's the gospel reading, um, are both about thriving life, right? They're promises mm-hmm. to thriving, not just um, surviving, but to flourishing life, I think. Um, and so, yeah, I think I'm going to hang on to that of like, what, what do I need? What's a practice that I can adopt in Lent that leads toward thriving and um, in myself and in my community? Right. right. And uh, Jess offered a reframe for us in the chat of, um, for at the level of congregations, what does it look like if we started the conversations, not about who we will lose if we take certain risks, but or what might be hard, but instead asked who we might become, who we might meet and who will join us. And then that's to, to me, another example of a thriving life. What if we thrived? What if our communities thrived? What if the, not just the sanctuary and our budget and our endowment, but what if our neighborhood thrived? Um, what if our state thrived because of this action that we took? Because I've seen it happen where totally. people of faith take stands against injustice for trans folks, injustice for um, incar- the carceral state. Like when we do that, there is possibilities for thriving. And that's mm-hmm. an important uh, focus that we could, that we can hold. And I think too, when, when just to add to, I think so often, I know this is not what Jess was meaning, or I assume it's not, but I think so often in the the church, we think about who's going to join what we're doing. Um, And when I think about thriving, it also makes me think like, where can we look for what's already happening? Mm -hmm. What's already thriving in our communities? And how can we as the church come and support that Um, without the expectation that all those people are going to show up at Zoom or on the sanctuary in the sanctuary on Sunday morning. But um, yeah, how can we contribute to what thriving is already happening? Absolutely. I love, yeah, I'm reminded of when so many churches decided to start childcare services for people, for especially to empower women to work outside the home and to to offer those services affordably and equitably. I mean, not always, but I think many churches made that commitment. And I think that went to the level of the tangible, of the practical that, like just add another example of like if you are starting something thinking about it from from all those dimensions and how important it is to like what does it mean to give your money your time your talents alongside a service or a or a vision that's already working um Mm -hmm. that's evangelism to me not just who's going to come to our building but how can we bring god's mission further into the world Mm -hmm. with those who are already doing it Mm. Emily, thank you for this rich reading. I, we want to end our practice with what's something that we want to take with us or hold um, in ourselves as a result of this conversation. Well, I'm definitely holding on to that image of the bow being not just a rainbow, but a, a bow that God is setting aside as a sign of, you know, no longer putting aside militarism and, and destruction. Um, that's really hopeful to me. And I think I'm also going to hold on to that. Like, this is a sign, a tangible sign for me to remember, for you to remember, for me to remember. I'm going to remind myself, I'm going to remember this. (laughs) 
you're going to remember this. Um, but just that like repetition of like, we do this over and over and over again. We need reminders. We reset, we repent, mm-hmm. we try again. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I think related to that, I'm reminded, I, I, I'm taking that reminder of the cyclical nature of the rainbow, that it is a circle, that we're in a circle, that we're in a cycle um, with all of this and that there is promise everywhere, even when I see destruction, um, and to and to look for it because there are places where it's visible, rather than just pine for it in the sky. That that, that it is there, and I can find it if I'm willing to look. Y'all, thank you for this really rich conversation on through the chat and um, Emily. All, as always, I so value your depth of insight, particularly in, in the communities that the PPF has been alongside for so many years and the wisdom that you've gleaned from, from those relationships, I think has so much to teach us about what peace really looks like, um, that it is ultimately an active relationship. So thank you for that. Totally, and thank you. It's great to be in community of various kinds with you. Absolutely. All right, y'all, we will be back next week on Tuesday. Um, for another conversation about uh, furthering this work of abolition. All right, take care.